Sabrina Marie, host of the Building Abundance Success Series. Our spotlight is on civil and disability rights. My guest is John D. Kemp, President and CEO of the Viscardi Center, an organization that provides lifespan services that educate, employ, and empower people with disabilities. He is a thought-after speaker. He's an attorney. Graduated from Georgetown University and the Washburn University School of Law. He's been a lobbyist and worked with various national and international groups over the last 50 years. He's also won many accolades in the field of disability rights. He was founder of the American Association of People with Disabilities with renowned leader Paul G. Hearn, along with many others, and has received the Henry Betts Award which is highly regarded as the top award in the disability rights field, as well as the Dole Leadership Prize, given to him by former Senator Bob Dole. We talk about the history of the 50 years before the ADA, as Disability Employment Awareness Month was started in 1945-46. Why did it take another 50-plus years for not only the original American with Disabilities Act, but the improvements to that act, which have continued through this century. To find out more about John and the Viscardi Center, go to viscardicenter.org. John and I are coming at you right now. It is 30 years since, well, the ADA, and I just thought it would be interesting not only to reminisce what times were like before the ADA, but have we really improved in the last 30 years as much as we should improve. So, John, I wanted you to take it away by giving us a background on you and, you know, how you got involved, not only with the ADA, but your life. You know, you have a a great life story, and you've um, helped many people over the decades. So I'll give it to you. Well, thank you, and uh, I want to say congratulations on being a Paul G. Hearn awardee. Um, Paul was my very, very best friend, and together we created the American Association of People with Disabilities, and look look where it has gone. It has really done very, very well, and uh, I'm very proud of the the new leadership that that the board selected, and Maria Town, and and the fact that you are an awardee makes me even prouder, so uh, congratulations. Well, thank my, you. My life. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You're welcome. So it's so deserving. Um, I I grew up with my disability. I was born without arms or legs, off at the elbows and the knees. I had uh, minor surgery on three of my four stumps to remove uh, toes and thumbs and things like that, and be able to wear artificial limbs, prostheses. And uh, I got my first set of legs when I was two. And first set of arms without elbows when I was three. And when I was four, I got elbows. And I thought it was the greatest thing in the world because I could take care of myself at the bathroom and I could feed myself and drink 7-Up out of a bottle and all sorts of things. And I started kindergarten and went through regular school with um, sort of uh, make-it-up-as-you-go reasonable accommodations, uh, which were just pure, simple logical things that um, adjustments that needed to be made to allow me to participate fully. Very minimal accommodations were ever needed, but I was in a regular school setting. 
um, all the way through grade school and high school was uh, in Kentucky. Grade school was in North Dakota. Uh, high school in Kentucky in a Catholic school. I had to climb up a flight of stairs to go to classes every day. It was a real small school, and so we all just stayed in our in our classroom. And teacher and the nuns would rotate rotate through. I loved sports and still love sports. And I was the I got seven letters in in high school for being the student manager of every team imaginable that a school a high school of 120 could put together. Um, I almost thought I was going to have to play basketball one time when we had so many fouls and people were falling out. But um, I I just I loved it all. I did well enough. Right. Did well enough in uh, high school to be able to get into Georgetown University. Um, was really encouraged uh, to stop thinking about athletics and start thinking about education. And I reluctantly acquiesced and uh, started thinking a little bit more about doing something than playing sports. And I uh, went to Georgetown in 67, graduated in 71 with a degree in history, but then went straight to law school out in Kansas. Uh, at Washburn University School of Law, where Bob Dole happened to have graduated, and started following his career. Met him when I was at at Georgetown in 1968, and uh, he was very instrumental to Paul and me and the way he helped develop AAPD and let us house our our new entity there. Uh, and you know, so I have just grown up in the in the civil rights movement. If you think back to really our first Declaration of Civil Rights. It was the 1973 Rehabilitation Act, and I was a second year uh, going into my third year uh, of law school, and I have literally grown up with with civil rights um, that have been established. So I feel like I'm I'm the product of uh, of the new era of a civil rights for people with disabilities. Now in '73, the '73 Act. What was the most important thing going on at that time where um, not only civil rights but just life in general because we, you know, we didn't get to the 1990s act until, you know, much, much later. But what was going on in the 70s, 60s, 50s? Yeah, there was, um, I would call it a sort of a matador um, approach to civil rights and and talking and, and allowing people with disabilities and people with sort of fake employers and places of public accommodation sort of pretend like we're really open to people with disabilities, but then I would call a hotel and say, I'm going to come and stay at your hotel, and uh, I, I use a scooter wheelchair to get around, but I can get up and walk some distances on my prostheses, and are you accessible? And they'd say, oh, yes, we're accessible, and I'd get there, and there'd be three steps in front, and the, and out would come the bell bell man. May I just say that? Not bell service, but the bell man. And it was usually a guy. And he said, I'm here to carry you up these three stairs. And I'm like, no, no, no. You know, no, 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 no. Mm. And and I would I would li- literally insist on going around to the back and coming in the, the back entrance um, and come in the building that way. And it was just a, a very, very difficult and different time for a lot of us. But, you know, we were starting to make progress. We were starting to come together as a, a group. People with disabilities were starting to find a collective identity. 
and I think we were pretty fractured up until that point. And even to this day, I think we're still quite politically fractured and economically fractured as a movement. But at least we were coming together and showed some clout. And then we found some really interesting or interested public servants and legislators and others who really started caring and, and paying attention to the fact that minorities had civil rights, women had civil rights, why in the world are people with disabilities being excluded that uh, people with religious beliefs that were different than, say, the the WASPy kinds of folks um, were also being reasonably accommodated. And in fact, that's where, it, that's where the phrase reasonable accommodation came from, was from Law, civil rights laws for accommodating the religious beliefs of, of people. So it was a, a very transitional period, uh, one of turmoil, a, a returning vets uh, from Vietnam, and a sort of a consciousness raising period where people acknowledged that 50,000 deaths and 500,000 injured people from Vietnam were coming back and and really were entitled to live good, full lives. And I think it helped uh, increase our um, civil rights and our inclusion. But it was a, still a very difficult, tumultuous time. The um, educational work and other, um, these are still issues that are being fought for today. What was going on back then? Because you said you went to college in the 60s and you're a student and, uh, and there's still things that are being fought for today and have right. we have we improved <laughs> enough oh my goodness um yes there have been actually there, there's been a lot of improvements but our i think our greatest weakness right now is in the employment arena with very little progress being made uh, in the 30 years since the passage of the ADA, uh, when you think about a 1% increase in employment, it's just, and then we already started at a pathetically low level. This, it's just intolerable. And I'm really disappointed that more hasn't been done, even though a lot of employers talk about it and more and more, more and more people are getting jobs, but, you know, are they able to hold on to those jobs and in difficult times? The last ones in are the first ones out, and that's a lot of times people with disabilities. The other area that I think is still a never, never existed back then but exists now is the information and communication technology area. The mm -hmm. ADA in 1990 did not even address it, didn't even contemplate there would be such a thing as the World Wide Web and the Internet, and we'd have all this ability to transmit knowledge and culture and information so readily. And so today we are kind of taking on what um, the previous generation did in terms of physical access, and that is access to all of the technological platforms and tools that are available and, you know, PDFs that, are, that need to be remediated that are of, of the older version. Today newer, new, new PDFs are readily accessible, but there are millions and millions of PDFs that are out there that are not accessible. Video videos that are not captioned, uh, no real-time uh, captioning, and other other kinds of services. So we've, we've moved our frontier a little bit, but the bottom line is it still hasn't enhanced the employment of people with disabilities, and that's really difficult. We certainly are educating more children with disabilities uh, and getting them through high school and even into college, but getting them through college, getting 
young people with disabilities or anybody of any age with, with a disability through college remains a, a significant challenge. And, um, you know, I, I don't know why it is so difficult because so much is online now and a lot of, a lot of, uh, educational programs are online. But anyway, we're doing better getting, getting them through post-secondary education. Because of what we're going through right now with this coronavirus, now people, uh, especially in um, some of the urban and suburban areas, um, they can't afford the technologies or uh, they don't have Internet access. But you would think that, especially since, you know, you mentioned there's technology, it wouldn't be such a big deal to get online. There have been online classes for at least over a decade or so. And that's one area that um, not only the disability rights movement, but others should really take advantage of. We're, we're, we're having to go there now, having to go there probably for the next month or so, as it looks Absolutely. right now. Absolutely right. But, we, mm-hmm. we um, yeah, mm-hmm. the Viscardi Center and Henry Viscardi School um coexist right here on our campus, and our school is made up of 170 students from kindergarten, grade school, middle school, high school, and even up to age 21 if they don't have their full diploma requirements. Uh, And these are medically fragile students with significant disabilities who are capable of engaging in the general curriculum. So the profile of a student in our school uh, is a power wheelchair using nonverbal student who is very capable of learning everything every student uh, in, in the country can learn and and we demonstrate it with 86% of our graduates going to college. Um, we Our school exists because of the medical intensities that we pr- pr- provide to our students that school districts and schools individually cannot afford to provide. They do not have the medical supports and services. We do a, more than 100 procedures a day in our medical suite for 170 students. We have a doctor one day a week and four full-time nurses and then probably 20 to 25 Medicaid-funded or private-duty nurses that accompany our students. So instead of being at home or in a hospital setting, they're in our school and extremely well-supported in our school um, medically. We also provide human supports and services to them uh, and obviously technological supports. So it's a, it's the new big frontier. We, we have been teaching remotely for students who have gone to surgeries uh, and are recuperating, and uh, we are, we are well-prepared for this. We closed, closed our physical plant but transitioned all of our school for the next you know, five to six weeks to an online platform, and we are extremely well prepared for it. So, um, bring it on! I'm I'm really proud of the fact that we were ahead of ahead of a lot of the schools and and where they are now. It's interesting. At the beginning of this interview, you mentioned Paul Hearn. Um, there are a lot of people, even with the history of um, the disability rights movement, that don't know who Ed Roberts was, don't know who Paul Hearn is. Justin Darts never mentioned, and you never even hear the name of my mentor, Sylvia Walker, Dr. Sylvia. You don't hear these names. Do you think that can change? It should change. I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, we, know, we know that 36 states 
uh, now require through their education departments that a disability history uh, component be part of the mandatory curriculum, uh, and that is a big plus. How much how much attention they give to it, I don't know. I'm disturbed, but I do believe in exactly what you're saying that some of the legendary heroes of our of our movement, like like Ed Roberts and Sylvia Walker uh, and Paul Hearn, are not everyday names to people with disabilities, and we have to do a better job of embracing our culture of disability. Uh, but disability history and culture, uh, to me, are high topics, important topics, and we want people to know what they went through to give us what we have today. Paul Hearn, just to let you know, was my very best friend for probably 10, 15 years, and um, he graduated from the Henry Viscardi School here on Long Island. He went to Hofstra University here on Long Island, uh, graduated uh, went to Hofstra Law School and graduated and worked in the city as an attorney um, for an, a number of years until Senator Bob Dole um, brought him to Washington. He, his first job there was to run the National Council on Disability, which is an, a governmental organization. And after a year, Dole said, enough, enough if you're ready to come over to my foundation, the, uh, the Dole Foundation on Employment of People with Disabilities, I'd like you to be a, its first president and CEO. And he became that, and he just was a legendary figure. The best part of Paul Hearn was that he was a very funny guy. He was brilliant, but he would take no guff, and he always could handle anybody that dared to give him any grief by using humor first and then a little bit of uh, strong verbal force as well. But he was extremely proficient at... um finessing difficult situations and, and using humor. He also loved to drink beer, and I tried to help him every night with that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, it's nice to know that he, he had, a, had a sense of humor. Um, and he really opened and, and opened the eyes of many people. I'm sure you both did. Um, there, there are many people, that the unsung heroes, that should be celebrated in this 30th year. And we should, I think, you're right, with a, um, with employment, be farther along. What do you think he would be thinking right now if he were still with us? He would be astounded and, and really upset that we have not made more progress. He had, he had such an effective way with employers, uh, and he could get them to empathize and understand very quickly why it was essential that they expand their applicant and, re and advancement pools to include people with disabilities. Um, if you add more people to those pools, you're going to be able to cream off a, a higher quality employee um, and, and executive. And not everybody comes into this through the first door or the entry, entry level. Many people acquire their disabilities after, long after birth maybe even by aging into disability, um, by onset of illness or injuries, and, you know, they have extreme talents. You think about the, the soldier of today is a much better educated individual going into the military and coming out is, is, um, has learned even more from the, from the very good education and, and instruction that they receive as soldiers. So wounded warriors coming back, are really coming back at really high levels, but their transition is still difficult from a 
command and control environment to a more of a um, cooperative management uh, arrangement where people come together and try to solve problems together. That is not the military way, but it is more of a uh, holistic way that we manage uh, businesses today. Fifteen years from 73 to um, 88, uh, 88 and 1988, um, what transpires and what is the difference between the approach of the 73 um, laws and what would eventually be passed in 1990? Because I think our listeners need to know how this evolved and how long it took. That's a uh, that's one of the most astute questions anybody's ever asked me. Um, you know, getting our getting our civil rights in '73 didn't mean we get it. We got them that year. It took four years of haggling with um, Joe Califano and then HEW to get the first set of 504 regulations out um, in 1977. Uh, and the, the law said they shall be issued within 180 days. And the courts were not quick to answer our pleas uh, from from disability rights attorneys. Uh, it took a long, long time to start getting the regulations that implement the law. So we really didn't get going until 77, 78, and then there was this gradual uh, governmental intervention, almost with kid gloves trying to do light enforcement. There were some pretty good people in OFCCP, the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs in the U.S. Department of Labor that was using the federal contracting power of Section 503 to drive some uh, compliance. But in general, it was very difficult. And I think we we had lost uh, almost every case we took to the Supreme Court in the 80s as they as they matured and got to the, to the appellate court and U.S. Supreme Court levels. We lost, I think, nine cases in a row until we finally won uh, Davis versus Southeastern Community College. And that was probably a pivotal point in our history, was the Davis case, where it said, where it said that a, a nurse with a hearing-related disability had every right to a reasonable accommodation, and it, for the first time, gave us a positive decision out of the Supreme Court. And that was in, that was in like, 87, 88. So... You're, you're hitting it at about the right time when there was sort of this, finally, the Supreme Court finally recognized that we had fundamental civil rights guaranteed to us in, in the area of reasonable accommodation, uh, and and all of a sudden, things started to change and differently and, and feel differently. And, you know, the 19, in 1986, Lex Frieden, who was chairing the National, uh, National Council on Disability, uh, had brought everybody together and created a document um, around independence, and he had mm-hmm. essentially drafted the first ADA in 86, and it was floated out there. By 88, we got the Supreme Court case. In 89, we had our first um, draft ADA legislation put to committees of Congress, and it was rejected by the commi- by various committees of Congress, John Bradamus and the, and the um, the Commerce Committee of the, the Subcommittee on Education in the House uh, rejected it. We could not get it all the way through and until 1990 when it was reintroduced with some different differences from the 89 bill. 
And in 90, it went through, and thank God for, you know, people like um, Dick Thornburg, who was the Attorney General, um, people in the White House, and then, of course, the first George Bush, who really embraced disability rights. And he considers the ADA one of the three top pieces of legislation that he ever ever had a hand in in getting um, passed into law. So you are picking out a two- to three-year period of time that was as pivotal in our history as any period of time for us. Now, I want to go back a wee bit. You, you were educated and able to go to Georgetown, and um, I'm sure there were some difficult times well before the 73. What was going on in education when you were around, and were there any laws or anything to protect you? Um, there were there were no law, no federal laws to, to protect me uh, when I was going through grade school, high school, even college, uh, and when the and the federal law passed when I was in law school, but didn't become effective for quite a while. So I had no I had no federal civil rights protections whatsoever. Uh, it was the power of persuasion of my dad. Uh, my mom had died when I was very young, and my dad raised three of us kids. And my dad um, would would go to this, the the public school system or the Catholic school system that I eventually ended up in, and um, persuade them that I was not a burden to them, that I could do almost everything that every other kid could do. I needed needed minimal accommodations or assistance and supports. So I was one of the lucky ones that came through a lot. Of, came through the educational system, but for my brothers and sisters with severe disabilities uh, and complex disabilities and severe health conditions that lend themselves to disability, they were absolutely discriminated against repeatedly. Um, there's, you know, mm-hmm. Judy Human is one of, is a great example of a, an extraordinary leader who got through uh, undergraduate. Uh, got her undergraduate degree in New York, got her teaching certificate, tried to become a teacher, and was denied a a, a teaching license twice and said, to heck with this, I'm going to join the the civil rights movement and I'm going to create holy heck um, because of it. So you you got people that really did fight their way through, had many more uh, conditions and severity of disability than I had, and uh, did something constructive with it, even if it meant being a really great advocate. So Judy is, to me, one of my great heroes in this world. You mentioned um, Judy not being able to be able to teach, but it's, it's, it's ironic that in 1947, I believe it was Truman passed, um, um, you know, the was it labor, Department of Labor, was it Disability Awareness, Employment Awareness? Um, and when I look at the, the timeline of that being, you know, I think in 1947 that came to be, and then, you know, in 73 people are still fighting. I'm like, wow, if they couldn't work, why was that? Was that in response, do you think, to Roosevelt having a disability? Yeah, Roosevelt not, not being out about his disability didn't help, but he was, he was mm-hmm. very worried as we were going through a period of war and, and the perception of weakness that a disability might portray, and that might have been the, the culture and climate of the time. 
Um, and so I, I, I reluctantly understand why Truman probably opted not to disclose his disability, but, and he also had tremendous wealth and the ability to have people do a lot of things for him and, and with him that allowed him to be able to, to function in, independently. Had he been out and been able to be out and proud about his disability, I think we would have seen a faster change. But the 47 law um, that created the President's Committee on Employment of the Handicapped was uh, really a, a, a gesture that said that we should get together once a year and uh, have essay contests and poster contests and do nice and fluffy things and um, get employers together and start focusing in on this. And some took it seriously and, and took it to heart. And they really did try very hard. IBM and AT&T and a number of companies really, really tried to, to do what Truman was intending to have accomplished by creating the President's Committee. But it, it wasn't until, you know, 30, 20, 30 years later, no, 50 years later, that the President's Committee got rolled into the ODEP, Office of Disability Employment Policy, and that's that's where it ended up. And today, we obviously have many more civil rights, and, and it, you know, it, it led to the growth and awareness, but it was mostly ceremonial stuff, not anything with teeth. It's interesting. I mention, um, you know, from time to time, not too often, because most people don't believe me. And I did know Justin Dart. And I did know uh, Sylvia Walker, and I did. But I think that if they were still around, they would still be, just like Paul Hearn, uh, surprised. I'm in a southern state that really does not honor the ADA and does not protect people with disabilities who need employment. How long and what is still being done nationally? So um, these rights that were fought for and these um, laws that are on the books will be um, implemented in all right. 50 states. Well, um, you know, the, the, there's never really been a, a, a great federal commitment to enforcing the federal disability employment laws. And I really think that, that it's unfortunate because um, some businesses wait until there's a lawsuit and then they start to act and react to it. I think we see that pretty heavily in the information and communication technology areas. And when companies get sued because their websites aren't accessible and uh, NFB may, brings an action in 2007 against Target and they they go to court and the and and the and NFB wins overwhelmingly and gets seven million dollars in damages and and other millions of dollars in punitive damages. I think then companies started saying, okay, don't sue us. All right, don't sue us and we'll we'll act and we'll get this done. It's you know, 13 years later and we still are wait, having a wait and see game going on with with companies about their websites. They're still producing. And, and developers are still developing inaccessible websites and, and content that's out there that's not usable and readable by people with a variety of disabilities. So it, some people respond to the threat. Other people get it because they understand maybe personally that there's somebody in their family or they, they themselves have a disability and they understand how important it is to, 
create a more pluralistic society and, and, and avenues of information and access. So it takes, it takes um, various tools to get people to respond. Sometimes logic doesn't work. Sometimes you have to use the stick to get, you know, something going here. And, you, and I just think government has been really slow to enforce um, the ADA and, and 504, which, by the way, is actually a broader, deeper law than, than the ADA is. Um, 504 is incredibly helpful. But anyway, I, I just think that a lot of companies are waiting to get caught, and and they win about 90% of complaints filed with EEOC on employment discrimination cases. So it's, it's you know, maybe the, the law itself needs to be toughened up. We, we tried to add more uh, in 2008 when the ADA was amended. We tried to strengthen it in terms of uh, access to the Internet and, and, and the World Wide Web. It was still not tolerable. Uh, they did change the burden of proof uh, and get it off of people with disabilities and more onto um, into onto employers trying to say you know as long as as long as people with disabilities made a presumptive uh, allegation of discrimination, then the burden should shift to employers saying, oh, that might be true, but it was not in our intention to discriminate. Anyway, there were some changes, but we didn't go far enough, and we still haven't gone far enough. So if anything, I would I would look at that. Another incentive, which is distasteful to me, but one that we probably should be considering, is um, incentives, tax incentives. And a lot of people just say, we have to incentivize people to do the right thing, really? And that's the way I personally feel. But it, whatever it takes to, to tap the talent of people with disabilities is really what's, to me, the most important. You can do it for five years, or you can do it, you know, and, and, and renew it if, if it hasn't changed anything. But incentives, greater enforcement, um, you know, and, and then there are still good companies out there that are doing everything right, and I'm, I'm proud of them. So it's, it's a lot of combinations of, of these things. There are a lot of um, uh, uh, construction companies also being sued because they're not building family units and other apartment units and housing for people with disabilities, and um, they're getting federal money, but they're not doing the right thing. That's a big thing, finding um, well, it is, you know, it, housing. Right. I can't imagine. You know, what really frosts me is uh, seeing cement poured, poured uh, to create steps. I just, I just get so frustrated when I see a frame, a frame of steps and cement being poured, and I just think, like, there better be an elevator of equal access in the front of the building, and it ought to be, it, it's almost unnecessary today to build steps. It, they're actually a hazard and create disabilities and injuries and other things, and, and yet we just insist, designers sometimes still insist on building in steps. I just, like, there ought to be a no-steps law, period, you know? Put ramps and shed water by the way you, you landscape. But um, the housing issue should be one of visitability, and a first floor first floor units always should be accessible. There should be, you know, based on a certain percentage or number, or I don't know why they can't build them all universally designed on the first floor, period. Uh, everybody benefits and nobody's excluded on universal design. So all first floor units, and if it's only three stories and it's too expensive to put in an elevator, okay. But um, we, can, we can bend a little bit, you know, to, to still be building public housing that's not accessible, it ought to be shut down. 
you're getting me really cranked mm -hmm. up. I'm, I'm, I feel pretty strongly about these things. <laughs> well, I'm hoping this interview will get some people cranked up. What do you see there for the future in these last 10 minutes we have together? What do you see for the future? I mean, we can celebrate, and I, I just got finished coming back from the Selma celebration and, and the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and I'm thinking, okay, after the celebration, what do we do? Where, yeah. where, where do we start? There's so many places to start, but there's still so much work to do. Um, I'll, I'll give you a couple of thoughts here. One is, um, I, I would, I would welcome adapt to, to roar its, or to rear its head and others who are really interested in, um, bringing greater attention to some of these very obvious um, violations of our civil rights um, and any other group that wants to get out there and, and do something about it. It's, it's just, it, the time's up, you know, we, we've waited long enough for some of these things to happen. And, you know, now we've got this current crisis that we're in of, of COVID-19 and we're going to, we're going to forget all about disability for a little while and, and, and it'll get pushed to the back again. But I, I would just think it's going to take some serious legal challenges and some civil disobedience um, to create some attention on these matters. I would like to see political candidates with disabilities emerge, and yeah. um, I would I would love to see us start owning our own issues. And you know, we have some members of Congress who are good advocates. Uh, some have disabilities, but. I would really like to see, you know, I wish Jim Abbott in Texas as a, as his, it's Governor Abbott, I don't know if it's Jim, there was a pitcher named Jim Abbott, but with one arm, but anyway, Governor Abbott in, in Texas uh, is a wheelchair user, and I don't see a lot of, a lot of growth of our civil rights and enforcement of our civil rights in Texas, and I don't see him using his platform as a governor to do a lot of things. I think he does some ceremonial things. I'm talking about some serious disability-centric politicians who have a disability agenda first that will obviously look at the broad citizenship of our of their of their represented area, but that can can carry forth public policy issues that are in desperate need of attention. So. I'm, I'm all for local, state, federal politicians with disabilities getting in the game and talking about disability issues. If you're going to be a, a politician with a disability and, and not talk about disability issues, I guess it's okay. Not every woman has to be a feminist and talk about feminine, fem, feminine, feminine issues and, and women's issues. But I do think that as a responsible person with a disability and you're a politician, you better you better speak up on, on the matters that um, are about your identity and your um, equality. One last question, Matt, because you mentioned that. I'm in a, a part of the country where, um, you know, because the DNC um, wanted um, various caucuses, uh, somebody mentioned a disabled caucus around voting, which I hate that name. But uh, they said because of laws within the state, they could not uh, enforce it until 2022. 
what do you think we need to do as people with disabilities to make our voices heard in this uh, political year? I don't want to wait till 2022 before somebody thinks that, you know, my vote is important. And we have that kind of thing going on in the country. I, I sat back and I debated with state senators and, and a guy with the House of Representatives and said, 2022 or caucus, why are you doing this? <laughs> the ADA was passed in <laughs> 1990. What kind of sense does it make? But this type of stuff is still going on. Mm-hmm. There's been a big pass on on the part of um, politicians in this area of, of um, creating equal access for us, folks with disabilities, and um, there are still inaccessible polling places, and their answer is um, vote, you know, by absentee ballot. Well, voting by absentee ballot is not an equal vote, and mm-hmm. it is not because you have to submit your vote. You have to submit your vote or your ballot um, at least two or three days ahead of time, in time for it to to get there at a certain time. It's not. You can't mail it in on the day of, um, and so what you lose is the effect of the last day or two's arguments and persuasions. And what we know is that quite a a large number, I'm not sure if it reaches 50%, but it's something like that, people with with disabilities and the public in general make up their final decision, make their final decision about a candidate in the last 24 to 48 hours. So an absentee ballot that has to be sent in days ahead of time is not an equal vote. Um, so there should should be no public polling places that are inaccessible to anybody. The second is all of the electoral uh, equipment and voting systems have to be much much more secure and they have to be fully accessible. Uh, I I would love us to see online. Voting, if we could stop the hacking and, and doing things like that, but I'm not sure we can even guarantee that. We can't even guarantee it in the general elections for non-disabled individuals. We've, Russia yep. all but admitted that they completely tampered with our election. Um, so I, I think we're I think we're in in an area which we have to go to this, which is trying to make sure that the that any polling that's done from remote is is secure and ex, and fully accessible. Any on-site polling places are fully accessible and that um, absentee balloting is a an exception that is not easily triggered. Mm-hmm. Great ideas. You're at the Viscardi Center. What is the website to tell our listeners? How can they sure. reach? It, gladly, and, and thanks for asking. Um, it is www.viscardicenter.org, and Viscardi is spelled with a V as in Victor, I-C-A-R-D-I, center, C-E-N-T-E-R, dot O-R-G. We'd welcome awesome. anybody and everybody to drop in on our website and check us check us out. Uh, and if you have any questions and, and need any help, please let us know. Thank you.